Dr. Tony White, you have a book published by the IPA, the Institute of Public Administration, on Irish parliamentarians, deputies and senators. And as we approach the 100th anniversary of the elections to the first Dáil in 1918, this is a directory of every TD and senator who ever sat in either the Senate or the Dáil and a little biog about them. Let's go back to the beginning, situate the context for these elections in Ireland in 1918. The first Dáil, 69 members of Sinn Féin were elected for, for 73 seats. Four of them actually were elected in two constituencies. This was the 1918 election to the British Parliament. Now, there's the first election there had been after the 1916 Rising, and there'd been a huge change in Ireland, essentially after the 1916 Rising. The sympathy that had been there before, or the sort of people were satisfied with the idea of home rule. But after the executions, opinion very much turned to the stronger, more advanced nationalists or Republican beliefs. So that when the election came up in 1918, it was essentially a contest between the Irish Parliamentary Party and Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin made it clear beforehand that even if they were elected, they were going to abstain from Westminster. 69 of them were elected. They wiped out the Irish Parliamentary Party effectively. It only got six seats and Redmond held onto their seat in Waterford. But the 69, you know, they said they were going to set up a parliament. Now, in fact... When the first Doyle was convened in January, there were only 27 of them appeared because pretty well all the others were in jail, either in Ireland or in England, because they were continually being interned or imprisoned for nationalist activities. Where did they convene? Where was the building? Oh, they were convened in the Mansion House in Dublin. Those first TDs were not recognised by the British government, were they? Oh, no, they, they, they didn't ban it initially. They only made it illegal some months into 1919. Their, their first meeting was well publicised. There was a very, very big crowd of people gathered outside the Mansion House to see it. But more and more, when they set up a government, as they did, well, then they were really providing an alternative administration and they were quite effective at doing it. Effectively, they took over local government. How did the British react to that? Well, they didn't like it, obviously. And then they also, they set up an alternative court system, a system of arbitration and that for land disputes and things. And it got to the stage where even people who were of union sympathies were trying to use it. They were more effective than the official courts because what they were doing was undermining the existing administration. Now... The initial reaction of the, of the British was to stamp this out. And they famously brought over black and tans and the auxiliaries to, to supplement the activities. And of course, that became very notorious because they were pretty rough diamonds, a whole lot of them. Public opinion went more and more over towards the strong nationalist side. And what really turned the corner was in early 1918, Lloyd George was Prime Minister, decided that they were, because of difficulties in the World War, in the war in, in France, they were going to impose conscription in Ireland. And everybody banded together, the parliamentary party, Sinn Féin, the bishops, the trade unions. Everybody said, you can't do that here. And they had to abandon the idea. But that gave Sinn Féin a huge amount of people coming behind them. It was probably the most significant thing in undermining British rule in in Ireland. More so even than the War of Independence. Well, I mean, the War of Independence clearly was also extremely important. It was the atrocities that were brought about by the Black and Tans and the auxiliaries and the effect they had on world opinion. That had at least as much effect as the actual war itself. And there came a point when Britain said, look, we can't go on like this. And a truce was called in July 1921. And from that you had negotiations, which eventually led to the treaty. 
Let's look at the composition of uh, Doyle Aaron in terms of your book, the TDs and the senators. First of all, the number of TDs altogether and senators. In the 100 years since the first Doyle, there have been 1,780 TDs and senators. There have been about 1,302 TDs and the remainder then were people who were senators only. And of them, how many were women? 189 have been TDs and senators, which would be about 10.5% of the, the entire group. Very small, really, it isn't is it? very small. Now, on the other hand, I think it's worth saying that if we were talking 50 years ago, it would be altogether more dramatic. I mean, there has been a gradual growth in women becoming TDs. The second Doyle, there were six women TDs. That number wasn't exceeded again until 1977. And the number went into double figures for the first time in 1981. It topped 20 for the first time in 1992. And the women TDs topped 30 at the last election in 2016. And I think you can be fairly confident that's going to grow. Countess Markovic was elected to the first Doyle. Well, she was. Uh, she she fought in in, in of surgery during the Rising. In fact, she was condemned to death, but they wouldn't actually because she was a woman. She was elected to the first Doyle. Well, in fact, she see she was elected to Westminster. She has the record of being the first woman elected an MP to Westminster. But of course, she didn't take her seat. She took her seat in the Doyle. She was the only woman in the Doyle. She became a minister, isn't that right, she you say in your minister. book? She was a minister for Labour in, in 1919, and, and she this... remained there till 22. She was the first minister. And there was another cabinet minister until Morgan Quinn in 1979. Wow, that's a long that gap, isn't it? a long gap. But, however, there have been 18 other women cabinet ministers and 13 junior ministers since 1981. And I think there's only one direction this is going to go, because you now have a quota system. Parties won't get funded if they don't currently have 30% of their candidates who are women. And that's going to go up to 40% in 2023. Now, there's a cultural change as well, because those women in the first 50 or so years of the doll, they were usually related to... Oh, yeah. In fact, in the first 50 years, you take the period up to 1968, there were 23 women TDs. Now, 12 of them were widows of TDs who had died, and two of them were daughters of TDs. And six of the others were related to people from the War of Independence or 1916 period, like Porrick Pierce's mother and his sister were both TDs. And Tom Clark's widow was also a TD. Really, all but about three of the women in the first 50 years were all either related to a, a former TD or, or to heroes of the War of Independence. Now, that's changed in later that times. That's changed totally. There have been only 20 women in the last 50 years who were related to somebody else. And it was just one of the newly elected people the last time. So really, when they're picking candidates for elections, any of the old business of putting up the widow, that's dead. People are there entirely on their own rights. And it's a historical uh, anomaly almost at this stage. Let's look then at age profiles. The longest serving TD, the longest serving senator and, and ages. Well, the, the longest serving TD was a man called Paddy Smith. He had been active in the War of Independence in Cavan. And he, he was only 22 when he was elected a Republican TD in 1923. I mean, he joined Fianna Fáil in the 1940s, right through to 1964. He was variously Minister for Local Government, Minister for Social Welfare and Minister for Agriculture. And he, he resigned as Minister for Agriculture in 1964 because he disagreed with Lamas's policies. He felt the trade unions were dictating too much in, in, to the detriment of, of the farming community, which he very much represented. He was there from 1923 to 1977. He was almost 54 years as a TD. Wow. So what uh, age was he when he'd left? When he, when he retired, he was, he was, he was 76. Right. And 
I noticed there you said he was 22. That is something about Doyle Aaron, the well, age profile of young people. That's, t- talk about that. Well, I think it's very interesting. In the first Doyle, you had 11 TDs who were under 30. And in the second Doyle, you had 23 of them. So it was a very, very young group of people. It's a young person's revolution, really. Because if you look at the, the composition of the, the first and, and the second Doyle, almost two-thirds of the people were under the age of 40. That is an amazing statistic, I think. Two-thirds under the age of 40. Yeah, that is, it is an extraordinary statistic, but it gives you an idea. This was a new state, and this was young people that had brought about the revolution. And, um, you know, they weren't part of the old establishment. Now, as usually happens in these kind of things, the age profile went up, and part of the reason it went up was uh, a lot of the, the people who were in the first soil, they were still there 40 years later. Or 45 years. And, and in fact, I mean, uh, some of them around that period, I mean, we mentioned Paddy Smith was 54 years. Frank Aiken was just under 50 years. And there were quite a number of others from around that period who served more than 45 years. It's an interesting thing. 17 or 18 people have served more than 40 years in the Doyle. But only one of those has been elected in the last 50 years, and that was Andy Kenny. Among a number of other things, it's just a more competitive game, and people aren't getting elected as early, so they, and they don't tend to last as long. It's a pretty gruelling business anyway. It's probably more gruelling than it was in the earlier years. Now, was 22 the youngest, or what was the... Who and what well, was the, the youngest, youngest TV? Well, the, there have been quite a few people. They had to be 21, but uh, the youngest has been... I mean, there have been quite a few people elected 21. In the first oil, Joe Sweeney was only 21 when he was elected, and he was 21 in a month or two. But the youngest of all time, of all in the last 100 years, was a man who died very recently, Billy Murphy, from, from Dunmanway. His father had, had been a minister and died, so they, he, he said, right... The Murphy names mean so much, they put up Billy, who had no interest in politics. He told me this himself, I got to know the man. And, um, but nevertheless, he actually celebrated his 21st birthday during the campaign for election. He had, you know, he had barely made it over the line when he was elected a TD. Now, he didn't stick at it, it was, he, he didn't run the next time. So he knew he didn't want it, he it wasn't for him. The oldest person sitting in either the Doyle or Senate, well, what the oldest, age? Well, the oldest person sitting in the Senate was Matthew Stafford, uh, one of the founders of Fianna Fáil. De Valera appointed him a senator at the age of 85 in 1938, when he was a stalwart of the party. You know, he went back in, well, back into the 19th century, into Fenians and things like that. It was great continuity. But he stayed there for 10 years, so he was 95 when he finally retired from the Doyle in 1948. I think that'll give great hope to many listeners today, that at 85 you can be appointed as senator and at 95 you're still there. Ageism not rife then, obviously, the way it is now. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't. I mean, there there were a lot of... This was stronger in the Senate. I mean, the, in, in the first Senate in, in 1922, the Cosgrave appointed Professor George Sigerson, who was another man who'd been very big in the whole uh, cultural Irish Ireland. He was, a, he was a writer and an author. He was also a professor of biology in UCD. And um, he was just coming up to his 87th birthday when they appointed him a senator. I think that's wonderful. Talk to me then about the North. Were there many Northern TDs from the starters? And I know that later on in the Senate there's been a a tendency to appoint Northerners. In the very first Doyle, you had quite a number of people who had been born in what was now Northern Ireland. Um, You had Sean McEntee, you had Ernest Blythe, you had uh, Owen McNeil. Those are three that immediately come to mind. Then as years went by, you had had quite a lot of other people. You had... um, Patrick McGilligan, who was a minister during the 1920s, he was born in County Derry. You had another man 
who was elected as Fianna Fáil TD actually in Lee Shawfully, Eamon Donnelly. And he was very strongly urging Fianna Fáil to get active and to get people, you know, to get involved in the North. And this is an issue that's come back up again very recently. Fianna Fáil didn't do it, although they were in two minds about it. And, I mean, he was one of the, the main organisers for the party. Over the years, you've had, between the Doyle and Senate, you've had something like, you've had over 60 people from Northern Ireland. Now, it became, at various times, Tishig always had the ability to, to nominate people. And there has been a tradition over a long time to have somebody from Northern Ireland. I mean, Sean McBride did with a man called Dennis Ireland in 1948, who was a journalist. Like the Taoiseachs would appoint a Northerner, sometimes a Unionist, to make that connection with the South. Well, that was right, is that, that um, they felt it was important that... that no, I mean, for example, you've had in the past, you've had people like Seamus Mallon, you've had uh, Breed Rogers... Gordon Wilson. You had Gordon Wilson, you had Stephen McGonigal, you had Sam McCautry, you had various people... Um, from Northern Ireland who, who, who were appointed senators. And um, this was, I mean, both sides of the political spectrum, whether it was, whether it was Fianna Fáil in government or whether it was Fine Gael and Labour in government. They, uh, Stephen McGonigal, indeed, was a trade union leader, and the Ombudsman in the North was another one who was, uh, who was appointed a senator down here. What do you think that was for? Well, I think, remember, both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael were nationalist parties. They were they both split from the original Sinn Féin, and um, the ambition at some stage that you would have a, you would have a unified Irish state has never gone away. How you go about doing it is, is, is eventually what became the issue that divided them. But um, that was part of it. But there was also the belief that you, you, it was we should have good relations with Northern Ireland, and since we were Irish people. I mean, there are an awful lot of things Irish people do together, including games. And there's an awful lot of we have in common culturally and every other way. So that ought to give expression to itself where, where there is possibility of it in, in, in Parliament. And that's, that's what's actually happened. There have been TDs and, and senators from outside of Ireland who weren't Irish. Quite a lot of TDs were born outside Ireland, whether it was in Britain or in the States. The best known one of them all was Dr. Mamji in Clare in 1992, who was... Um, were born in South Africa, and he was the first Muslim to become a, to become a TD in Ireland. You've always had emigration from Ireland, so you've always had Irish people. So quite a lot of a number of the people who were, particularly were senators, were born in places like like Malaya, as it was then, where their family might have been in the, in the British Foreign Service. You had people born in Africa. Morris O'Connell is a man I'm thinking about in Malaya. But then you had others, you see, who were quite a number born in the States. Most, obviously, the most prominent one was yeah, de Valera. Yeah. But, but a huge number of them were also born in Britain. I mean, uh, Jim Larkin was born in Britain. Liam Mellows was born in Britain. Those are two that immediately come to mind. And I noticed you mentioned we had a a Muslim. Dr. Banji was a Muslim. We've had Jews and Church of Ireland people, I presume predominantly Catholic, but was it a hospitable doll down the years for other religions and um, faiths? I think it's fair to say that, well, in fact, in the the first oil, I mean, Cosgrave went out of his way to make sure that the Protestants in unions would feel at home. This was almost something that was criticised for by Republicans. And a considerable number of them were Church of Ireland or Presbyterian and um, had been unionist supporters. And of course they were attacked because they were political opponents. But there was no question, they were made to feel at home as far as Parliament went. In, in latter times, there was one, one Church of Ireland senator with a man called John Blennerhassett I mean, back in, in the in the nineties, he said, "Well, he what he found was that he said, in fact, that his Protestant never made the slightest difference as far as he was running for election down in Kerry." And I think, broadly speaking, that's true. 
We had Alan Shatter, who's a Jewish minister. Well, we We've had, had Ben Briscoe. Well, Mervyn Taylor was also was also a Jewish minister, and you you had Jews from in you know in Fianna Fáil. You had you had both Ben and uh, Robert Briscoe. It has not been an issue. I mean, another thing that's actually worth saying as well is that in terms of of differentiating church and state, uh, there has never been a clergyman who was a member of the the Doyle, unlike Stormont, unlike the House of Commons, unlike the House of Representatives even. Uh, And there's never been one who's even been a candidate. And needless to say, there haven't been any nuns either. Um, It's a good point. It's something you don't reflect on, take it for granted. But in fact, I mean, there has been, in terms of the democratic system in Ireland, there's been complete separation of church and state. Nobody's ever thought of putting a priest up here. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about the role then maybe that education played in terms of like religious education. Quite a lot of people in the first 50 years of the Doyle hadn't gone beyond primary school. More had been in secondary and a smaller number had been in third level. Now that's been completely turned around. There's only a small number would, would have only had primary, uh, much bigger number with secondary and the biggest of all would have all been to third level. And then in terms of where they went to school, well most of them obviously went to Catholic schools. The biggest single influence of a group obviously been the Christian Brothers. Um, an enormous number of TDs went, went to school with the Christian Brothers at one stage. What about the Jesuit it, connection? The, the Jesuits then sig- are quite significant after that. At this stage, I haven't done any, any breakdown of numbers on it. But I know, and if you take the, the, what were the six Jesuit schools, if you take Clongos for a start, I mean, they've had a Taoiseach in, in, in John Bruton, but with a lot of others like Patrick McGilligan and, and um, he, he, he present time with Simon Coney. You've had a lot of, of Clongos people, and you've had them on both sides, like because you, PJ Little, who was in? Who was a Fianna Fáil cabinet minister? He was. Uh, he was Clongos. And that's Wire. unusual because we usually associate well, Clongos uh, with Clongos. For a lot of people's mind, because John Redmond went to school there, was one of the most distinguished pastors of the scene. It's a Redmondite place. But in fact, as I say, Paddy Little was Mr. Post and Telegraph for years in De Valera's cabinet. Uh, Conor Maguire, who was Fianna Fáil uh, Attorney General, was, was another one who, who and was TD. Another one who went to Clongos. I can think of some others like Leo Baptist Skinner, who was a, a judge afterwards. It was a TD down in Cork. He was also so Clongo's man, but no, there, there were there were a lot of them, and they were predominantly probably Finnegan, but they weren't all. And uh, what about Gonzaga? We had Gonzaga has, but it's a relatively recent school, and it's only very recent times that they began. But they've had quite some. I mean, they've had two cabinet ministers, in Michael McDowell and Eamon Ryan, and they've had a number of other people like Kieran Cuff and um, Peter Matthews, who have been TDs. So they have had in recent times they've had a number. Belvedere about... have always had a, a, a significant number, starting off with most famously Cahal Brewer, and then Gary Fitzgerald was was a Taoiseach. Uh, they have, they've had many others they, they have at the present time. I know Jack Chambers is one of them. You, there was the whole Belton family and um, many more. Uh, um, present, my own school, yeah. you had had cabinet ministers, you had Donnick O'Malley and you had Des O'Malley and you had Tim O'Malley as a junior minister. So you had the you had four O'Malley's who have been in the Doyle at a certain stage. They all went to Crescent College. They all went to Crescent College, yeah. You had Tom O'Donnell who was another, was another cabinet minister who went to Crescent. You had, from the early days, you had um, people like George Bennett and Dick O'Connell. Mongers, for example, had uh, Frank Fahey who was the the Count Corda for many years was 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 an old mongrel man, and in, in the Jesuit Galway you've had Bobby Malloy was perhaps the best was cabinet minister best known as a patriot there. But there there have been quite a lot of other people who, who were Martin McDonough. Martin McDonough, I think, may have been in Tonnebeg, and there were one or two others who were in Tonnebeg. One of those in the early days, because Tonnebeg had been a Jesuit college until it was closed in eighteen eighty six, and some of the early people had gone there as well. It's, it's quite noticeable that in in terms of I mean the Christian Brothers are a huge group. But the, the, the next biggest group is, is quite obviously the Jesuits. 
Fascinating. And and I noticed there was, even in the early days, Frank Shaw was a Jesuit who wrote a famous, very controversial article yeah, about... Yeah, well, uh, Frank Shaw's father was a Commonwealth TD in Longford, Westmeath in, in the 1920s and 30s. Frank wrote the article about the 1916 That's rising. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, re-examined his studies. In, it appeared in 1972. It was too controversial to publish in 1966, I think. Paddy O'Mara in um, Limerick. Paddy, Paddy was a Jesuit. He wrote a book that was famous. It sold over a million copies, Praying with Jesus. Brother, his brother was, was um, one of the very first um, Sinn Féin TDs. He had been in the Irish Parliamentary Party MP and resigned and joined Sinn Féin. He was elected for Kilkenny. He sat in the first Doyle and he also sat in the fourth Doyle. He was a very important backroom figure in, in Sinn Féin. In fact, generally regarded he was the one who, more than anybody else, bankrolled them because he had been a very successful businessman in, in the whole O'Mara's and uh, bacon factory. They owned Donnelly's with the famous sausages. He was a very wealthy man. He went to the States to do the, the fundraising for the Republic. And they had a disagreement because there was a lot of divisions among the Irish and America and he and Dev fell out over it. And Dev got and got his his brother over instead, and his uncle Stephen was also a senator in the in the in the nineteen twenties. The connection there, I mean, Father Paddy O'Mara was it was a brother of James O'Mara, and James O'Mara was a uh, grandfather of Father Conor Ravel, who's a Jesuit and, and an artist and living right. today. So all in all, there certainly was a huge Jesuit influence on. Dáil Éireann since it's... Oh, well, there was, because well, there were other people among, among the Jesuits that, that, I mean, De Valera took quite a, a lot of uh, advice from a man called Father Edward Cahill, who, who wrote a, a book on the framework of the, of the, the Christian state. And um, Father Cahill set up a, a group, an Irish-speaking kind of sodality, and that had a lot of the figures in it. And Riochthus was known as... So he was quite an influential figure among Republicans particularly. Another man, of course, who was also very much... You know, in, in the background was Father Tim Corcoran, who was professor of education in, in UCD at the time. So they they were in the background as advisors and uh, performing the kind of role that nowadays would be performed by policy think tanks. So overall, Tony, this book that you've done, you've put a lot of work into it. It's a huge research. It's a huge resource for people and for anoraks and all of us who love to read about you know tds and the bio about them what was your overall impression having done all the work what did you feel about ireland our own parliament doyle Aaron? i think there's actually quite a lot to be proud of because there were a whole lot of new states established in, in, in the aftermath of, of the 1914-18 war and you could certainly argue that that was one of the reasons it created the circumstances where an independent Irish state could be created and um, we're one of the relatively few that have had a hundred years of democracy without, without interruption. It didn't have soldiers coming in, running it for, or dictators running it for a while. It has remained, we have remained happy to have democratic politics where power is competed for and sometimes the winners have to hand over to the former losers. Which of course are, northerners would feel and I'm one myself so vested interest that we paid a price for that we feel we were left behind somewhere along the line. I know that there, there's no simple answer to that to that question there's really very little I can say about that I, I know I know the northerners feel like that and for a long time 
there was a feeling that you know we should feel slightly ashamed of ourselves because we hadn't ever got that we haven't got the the, the kind of state that we really wanted. But we're, as you say, no, it's a good point that, that that democracy and that 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 has lasted, and we don't have an extreme right in. in, in no, we we, we have managed to we we have managed to keep two major parties. Now there's sometimes a complaint made because that you don't have an obvious left right divide. But in many ways, uh, having sort of major swings in, in, in power can have all sorts of difficulties for a country. Whereas, in fact, if there's broad consensus about what sort of should be going on, when elections change, there are things then socially and otherwise that will change and be part of, a, of the manifesto of other parties. So, I mean, certainly Irish society hasn't been static in the last hundred years by any means. And we've had proportional representation as a means of voting, which was there from the beginning almost. Is yeah, well, no, the interesting thing about that was this, no, the first election that Sinn Féin got in in 1918 was the straight vote, first past the post the system British, that, the that you're system. familiar with in Northern Ireland. And because of the nature of that, Sinn Féin, with 47% of the votes, wiped out the Irish party, which got 22% of the votes. But that's the kind of thing can happen under a single-seat system. Which is why they've brought PR in the North as well. So the British PR. When the second election was to be for the Southern Irish Parliament, that was under PR. And uh, we went with it. We went with PR. And sorry, the British introduced that. The British introduced that. Interestingly, de Valera put it into the 1937 Constitution. And then he and Fianna Fáil had second thoughts about that. Uh, And they... In the when De Valera retired and ran for president the same day, you had a referendum to um, get rid of PR out of the constitution, and that De Valera was elected, but uh, the, the referendum proposal was rejected. They ran it again nine years later, or it was even more thoroughly rejected. So it has never been reopened as an issue. But one of the interesting things about it is, I would argue that. PR is what has kept Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael at the top of the tree. You take what happened Fianna Fáil in 2011, where their votes slumped from what it normally was at between 40 and 50% down to 17%. If that had happened under a straight vote system, they might have been likely to come back with two or three seats, and they would have found it impossible to recover. They got about 20 seats still when they got, when they got their vote went that low. And they had plenty to rebuild on. I mean, they nearly, nearly doubled that number for the next election. So PR saved them. And the same thing, I would say, happened in Fine in the 40s. I mean, after the 1944 election, there were 10 places where they had no TD. And after the 1948 election, there were 12 places where they had no TD. In '44, there were four constituencies they had no candidate. They were dying on their feet. And when they got into government in 1948, suddenly what was left their support said, God, great, we actually can get into government. And they never looked back. They began growing and organising and all the rest of it. And those two parties have known how to exploit PR in terms of a thing we call vote management, making sure you don't have too many candidates and things like that, and try and spread them around the constituency. So they've been impossible to dislodge. And in a relatively mature democracy, it's not going to be, it's not easy to see that's going to happen. There's a whole lot of professional, semi-professional politicians who are sort of the backroom boys and girls in these parties, and they're pros. And there's not anybody trying to dislodge them is going to have a job. <laughs> Nice note to end on. Tony, your book really is a wonderful resource for people. Irish parliamentarians, deputies and senators. It's published by the IPA and it costs 60 euro and would be a lovely present for many a person throughout Ireland because we are politics mad. Thank you very much.